already said. Kids, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say kids, parents of kids, don't worry, okay? Squirming is permitted. Talking and noise is permitted. We did make a controversial decision as a church that um, we are not going to, um, one of the number one things for church, church growth strategies is to find a place to put children during worship. Um, and we broke that rule. I talked to a couple this week who said, I'm going to give TCPC another try. I really want to be at your church. I just don't know what to do with my son during the service. It's embarrassing. He can't keep still and all that. And I cast a vision for him of why we think it's important that the children are with us in church. I know it makes it harder. I know it makes it more distracting. I know as a parent it's harder. Um, I know it's hard for you children, but you just have to trust me that week after week after week, those little souls are being formed into people who love worship. So, uh, so yeah, it's okay is what I'm trying to say. My son said, I'll give you a challenge here. Here you go, kids. Here's my challenge. I, I did this with one of my sons. Uh, well, Mark, I was off July, and we, I was out there with you, keeping up with one of my sons, all my sons. But one of my sons said, Daddy, I know how many squares are up there. Uh, uh, because that's what he does. He counts the squares. And I said, okay, new challenge. Great. I'm glad you could tell me how many squares are up there. I'm sorry, kids, if I just gave you an idea. Ignore that idea. Here's a challenge. How many times... How many times in my sermon do I say the word Lord? That's your word for the day, Lord. So every time you hear Lord, do a little count. How many times do you hear the word Lord? And I have the right answer. Uh, it was, I was, uh, while y'all were singing, I had that idea, and I went through and I circled every Lord. So I've got the answer. Afterwards, you come tell me, um, or Pastor Will, he'll be back there. You come tell me, and I'll tell you how close you were, or you're right, if you're right, you get a prize, which is like a high five or something like that. So. <laughs> All right. We exist for the good of the bluegrass. Implicit in that is that the world, the bluegrass specifically, the world in general, as it is, is currently not good. A church that has to exist for the good of the bluegrass, implicit in that is that the bluegrass, as it is, is not good. Or, to put it more bluntly, that the world as we know it, the bluegrass as we know it, is bad. Now, that's a controversial thing to say in our day and our time. I read an article this week that I think articulates why um, maybe the sentiment of our day this article about a couple who quit their jobs to bike around the world um, because, as they put it, they were tired of missing sunsets and thunderstorms and the feel of cool breezes. Yes, they were millennials. Um, I've, I do, more than anybody, I do my best to try to defend millennials, but they really, they just don't help me with articles like this. But anyway, <laughs> they quit their jobs to bike around the world. But the greater purpose of their journey was to prove that really the world isn't a bad place, and they blogged about their experience around the world. Um, here's the, here, was the most, here was the most recent entry in their blog. You read the papers, and you're led to believe that the world is a big, scary place. People, the narrative goes, are not to be trusted. People are bad. People are evil. And they, and they said, I don't buy it. 
Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow human beings. And they were so committed to that philosophy and to that conviction that they decided when they rode their bikes around the world, they decided to ride their bikes through ISIS territory. This happened last week. They were run over by a car. Five men got out and stabbed them to death right after they wrote that blog entry. And this is being obviously shared all around the world as the blindness of the West and the naivety of the millennials and and all of these different things. But really all it's saying is what we already know in the doctrine of total depravity. That the fall has infected this world and this world is evil. Granted our evil is different. It comes in different forms. But evil nonetheless. And so here we are in the bluegrass asking how can we be a church that exists for the good of a place that is so desperate for goodness. Paul answers it this morning in an interesting way. He answers it with a teaching on identity. How can you be a person and how can we be a church that exists for the good of the bluegrass? Essentially, you know what his answer is? You be you. You be the identity that you already are. So here are my two points. The manner of our identity and the mission of our identity. First, the manner of our identity. What is the nature of our identity? Verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. The Greek there does not imply separatism. Okay, He's not saying have nothing to do with them or anything like that. It means you can't be the same as them. You can't be yoked with them. Now, why? He explains it in terms of identity. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light. That's identity. You were this, now you are this. But notice how definitive is the contrast. You were darkness, now you are light. No room for in between is the point. And this means that Paul views a stark contrast between the Christian identity and the identity of everyone in the rest of the world. We tend to make contrasts in other areas, but Paul views the main contrast between Christians and the rest of the world is an identity contrast, and that is very important. Because if we start saying what's different between us and the world and we start getting into behaviors or political persuasions or habits or disciplines or whatever, then you see how ridiculous that quickly becomes. But if you define it as an identity, then it starts to make sense. The Christian is capable of sin. I hope you know that. Horrific sense. But our identity... We were darkness, now we are light. That doesn't mean we're not capable of darkness, darkness deeds, but our identity has fundamentally changed our relationship to sin. To borrow the language of our verse, where once we loved darkness and hated light, now our identity has been changed such that we love light and hate darkness. Sure, we are capable of darkened deeds, but since we are now light, 
we will never be at peace with our darkened deeds because it's just not who we are. Whereas before our identity change, we were at peace with darkness, we delighted in it, we boasted in it, we identified with it, now we are disturbed. We are ashamed. We are troubled. We are miserable. And some of you are right there right now who have slipped into a pattern of besetting sin that is contrary to your identity and you are absolutely miserable because it's not who you are. So identity speaks to our heart of hearts more so than our behaviors and yet it has profound implication for our behavior. You are light. You will never be at peace with darkened sins and so the Christian journey is becoming who you already are. The painful laborious, at times maddening journey away from duplicity into unity. The unity between who you are and what you do. This is why Paul seamlessly moves from identity to practice. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Translation, be who you are. Walk in the Greek is synonymous with conduct. Since you now have a changed identity, you now have a changed disposition marked by light, your conduct should bear witness to your new identity. But what does that look like? Well, it's very interesting how ambiguous Paul is in defining that. Look at verse 9 when he kind of gives a parenthesis here. For the fruit of light is in all that is good and right and true. Well, that's real helpful. How do I discern what is good, right, and true? Do you see how, by the way, do you see how different Christian virtue is? Religious virtue is very definable. It's a definable list of what to do and what not to do, and your identity is your ability to follow those rules. In contrast, Christian virtue is an identity that then bears fruit of what is good, right, and true according to that identity. Look how Paul describes it in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I got to add that one to the total. I missed that one. Kid, that's your first Lord. The ultimate fruit, the ultimate fruit of the Christian identity is a desire to please your Lord. We are a people who in thought, Word and deed, this is Christian ethics, people. It is not a list. It is not so easily discernible of to-dos and not-to-dos. We are a people who in thought, word, and deed at all times and in all situations are trying to discern what would please our Lord. Simply put, the heart of your new identity is that we have a new Lord that we long to please. The word Lord, a very significant word in the biblical context, is the guiding principle to our identity. The claim of Jesus, this is the claim that he made, is that he is Lord of heaven and earth. Those who believed him, what they did is they formed a new community. A community, would, I would go beyond that, a new kingdom, dare I say a new world around this conviction. A world where Jesus is Lord in the midst of a world governed by Caesar, in the world governed by the lordship of countless idols, 
there arose this peculiar people who identified Jesus is Lord and we do life trying to discern what pleases our Lord. And this identity ethics formed a very unique religion. A people who were not absent from this world as many of the Gnostic religions were in that day. Nor were they indulgent in this world as many of the pagan religions were in that day. Instead, they were a demonstration of a new world with the Christian identity that Jesus is Lord at the core of this new world. So let's move from theory to practicality. As I said, we can relate to Ephesus as an over-sexualized culture. Sexual expression um, was the God of their culture, and it's become the God of our culture. But we have a different identity, a different Lord. So we ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do with my sexuality. I know what the world wants me to do, and that's whatever I want to do. But what does my Lord want with sex? For some of you, that might mean celibacy. That's crazy in our world, but it's not crazy when we try to discern what is pleasing to our Lord. For some of you, it might mean essay. Sexual anonymous for an addiction. For some of you, it might mean counseling to heal sexual trauma. For some of you, it might mean working hard with your spouse not to just do the, the deed, but to cultivate a, a sex life that, that, that the way Jesus designed it, vulnerable, self-giving, self-sacrificing, body, soul, intimacy, fighting to rediscover that blessed original state of naked without shame. Do you see what I mean, though? In a world that worships sexual expression of any kind, we do it under the lordship of Jesus. And this identity ethic applies across the board. Ephesus, like us, was a wealthy society where prosperity was worshipped. But Paul says, that's not who you are. You have a new identity where Jesus is your Lord, so discern what pleases Jesus with your money it's not that Christians can't make money. It's not that Christians can't make lots of money. It's that they must place their wealth under the lordship of Jesus and discern what pleases him with this. What do you want me to do with this? It's not that Christians can't pursue positions of power within society. Instead, they ask the question, what does it look like to be a powerful person with Jesus as my Lord? How do you do power discerning what pleases Jesus? What does it look like to do student life with Jesus as Lord? We just talked about teachers and education. What would it look like this year to be an educator with Jesus as Lord? Listen, you know how the rest of the world does education. It's a lot of cynicism. It's a lot of annoyances. It's a lot of cutting corners. It's a lot of children are annoying. They're not this beautiful seed of potential. What would it look like for an educator to say, what does it please my Lord to do with this classroom? What does social media look like with Jesus as Lord? And on and on we could go. Not what would Jesus do, WWJD, but what would Jesus want me to do? 
So this is the nature of our identity, okay? What pleases my Lord? And in that pursuit, we will discover something that pleases the Lord even more, which brings us to the good of the bluegrass. Discerning what pleases Jesus is not an end in itself. It is a means to a greater end, that which pleases Jesus the most. Let's look now at the mission of our identity. Continue on verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Paul moves from what we are to do with this new identity, discern what pleases the Lord, into what we are not to do. Take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, meaning don't take part in your former identity. So at first it would seem like he is advocating for a form of separatism here. Huddle up with those of the new identity, except then he immediately says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but, here's the contrast, instead expose them. Exposure seems to require engagement. So are we supposed to have nothing to do with them? Or are we supposed to be exposing them? The answer to this question reveals the mission of identity. The fruitless works of darkness are exposed by the fruitful works of light. Paul's description of darkness here is very important to understand the argument that he's making. He calls it unfruitful. Have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. The assumption is that the works of darkness never deliver, never produce the intended results. This is true of all idolatry. We read it in our Old Testament passage, that beautiful imagery of the vanity of idols, which can never produce. Life outside the lordship of Jesus is fruitless, promising to satisfy, and yet inevitably leaving us wanting. Then, you, cross, you, you contrast that with life under the lordship of Jesus. And what is discovered is not fruitlessness, but flourishing. And our lives are meant to be a living demonstration of that contrast. In other words, our identity speaks for itself. When you hear Paul say, have no part in the darkness, but instead expose them, I think most Christians think, expose them through um, bold witness, um, sharing a, a blog on social media, um, I, all these different ways that we're all fighting each other. But what he is saying actually is expose them by you being you, by you doing your identity. Your identity speaks for itself. As we embody Life under the reign of the Lord Jesus, we expose the folly of life under the reign of idols. Look at verse 13. He, he reiterates the mission of our identity. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. He is saying there is a way to expose the folly of our culture without even uttering a word against our culture. And it's live out the identity of your culture and it will expose the darkness of their culture. The church has always struggled with this. Church has always struggled to understand how to live in this world. Do we flee 
from the world by creating a subculture hiding place? Or do we join the world through relevant engagement? The answer to the text is neither. We create a new world where Jesus is Lord. And that new world will always, always expose and transform the world around us. This is why obedience to Jesus matters. It is not just good for you. It is good for the bluegrass. We tend to think of virtue. We tend to think of obedience only in pietistic terms. That's our, that's, uh, that would be the failure of the conservative evangelical world. We only think vertical. We tend to think of our obedience only in pietistic terms. I obey because I don't want to offend God and I want to please him. I don't want to sin in these things. And certainly that's true. It's just not enough. We must view Obedience. We must view virtue more than vertical pietism and see it as horizontal transformationalism. It's good for me to obey Jesus. That's good for me. And it's good for you. Obey Jesus. It's good for the soul. But it's also good for the bluegrass for me to obey Jesus. Now this, what this does is empower and embolden you in the mundane to know that every good deed, or as Keller says, every good endeavor in the name of Jesus, every time you make a decision, even the smallest decision to please the Lord changes the world. Again, let's get practical with Ephesus in America. Do you view your sex life as missional? Because it is. We live in a world that is drowning in grief, shame, anguish of unhinged sexual ethics. The sexual revolution has left a wake of trauma and exiles. It is a tsunami of pain. Do you know what you can do about it? Sexuality like Jesus meant it. Expose the fruitless darkness of the insanity of our world's sexual ethic by shining the light of human sexuality under the reign of Jesus that always flourishes. Or we, like Ephesus, inhabit a world of greed and excess, and it isn't working, it's killing our culture. How many more things must Americans buy before they discover that life is not found in the next purchase? At what point are we going to admit that greedy people are miserable people? Do you know how to show them that? Place your money under the lordship of Jesus, who himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we are trying to discern what pleases my Lord. My Lord said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm going to have to trust him in that. And then we show the world the counterintuitive truth that happy people are generous people. And on and on we can go with the mission of our identity. Expose this world's idolatrous vanity by the mission of your virtue and lives. 
So, do you know what's good for the bluegrass? You obeying Jesus. Do you know what's good for the bluegrass? A community, an institution altogether obeying Jesus. So here's my application for us today. Tomorrow you're going to wake up and the normal questions will come at you as they do every day. What do I have to do today? It's not a bad question. We're all going to have that tomorrow morning. What do I have to do today? It's just not the main question. See, we all wake up and we all have things to do. That's nothing different. We are no different from anybody else in the world if we simply wake up and say, what do I have to do today? Instead, I want you to wake up tomorrow and ask the question of identity. Not what do I have to do today, but who will I be today? Who will I be as I do what I have to do today? In every decision, in every thought, in every word, in every conversation, in every deed, who will I be, not what am I doing? Christians transform the world when they are who they are in the midst of the world. Now listen, I know Darkness can be overwhelming, and naive millennials riding their bikes through ISIS territory is just another example of that. It's overwhelming to think about. But you need to know that light is overwhelming to darkness. After all, it worked for you. It's interesting how Paul ends this section, isn't it? 14, anything that becomes visible to light is light. Who do you think he's talking about there? Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the miracle of your identity change that he started with. You were darkness, now you are light. And he comes back to that identity change. That miracle of, if you think the darkness of the world is overwhelming and can't be changed, well, he did it to you. Why can't he do it here? is the point. You were darkness that at one time seemed insurmountable, but the light of Christ shined on you and you woke up. The light overcame your darkness. Why can't that be true of our community? Let me show you something else that I read this week. There's a story about the revolution against communism in the former uh, Czechoslovakia. And I love this quote from Havel, one of the leaders of the revolution. He was asked how they succeeded in this insurmountable task of communism. How in the world did their revolution succeed against something that seemed unchangeable? This is his answer. We had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays, we sang our songs, we read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we went out to the streets of Prague and embodied that truth, rejected their lies, and communism had no choice but to fall. What a beautiful picture of the church. What a beautiful picture of the people of God with a new identity. We gather here as a, as a parallel society to pray our prayers, to sing our songs, to recite our confessions, to hear God's word proclaimed, to partake in sacraments, and then go forth beneath the Lord's benediction to wake up tomorrow, to go into every sphere of community, to live out our identity in the darkness of the bluegrass has no choice but to fall. 
Let me pray. Lord, fill us with the not light of your gospel that it might overflow. It does start there. As you began and ended that passage um, through Paul, it begins with our identity, with what you're doing in us. But Lord, I pray that um, as we go forth, we would be witnesses to a different world where you, Jesus, are Lord. Help us discern what's pleasing in your sight and help us to live that out starting tomorrow as we wake up and ask the question, who do you want me to be today? Lord, now fill us with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as seen in the cross, sacrifice, and soon to return of Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.